Hello, this is Scriptlock, where we talk about video games, talk about storytelling in video games, and I'm Max Folkman. And I'm Nick Folkman. Uh, today's guests are George Lockett and Mary Gooden. George is a senior writer at Fail Better Games and a narrative consultant, writer, and designer at Bear Wolf Narrative. He was previously the narrative lead on The Last Clockwinder, the script writer and interactive designer for BBC Earth, Micro Kingdoms, Senses, and a contributing writer to Where the Water Tastes Like Wine. Mary is a senior narrative designer at Maze Theory, currently working on Peaky Blinders, The King's Ransom. Previously, she was a writer and editor on Zombies Run, a writer and narrative designer at Fail Better Games on Sunless Skies and Fallen London, a writer on Inkle's Pendragon, and co-created Funicular Simulator 2021. Thank you both for coming on today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, so we'll start with the usual question. Yeah, do your reminder for Sony. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before I start, I'd like to remind listeners that anything I say on this podcast does not represent the views of Insomniac Games or Sony Interactive Entertainment. Now I can finally <laughs> ask. Start with George. How did you break into video games? There's like varying lengths of answers to this question. So I think... I guess how I got into writing in the first place goes back to when I was about 11 and I started playing D&D and sort of as the person who played one session before became the goat, like the de facto GM for about, you know, a couple of decades, not really getting to play. And it turns out those skills are were super useful later in my life, which I wasn't quite expecting. <laughs> um, I started writing loosely in about 2013. I, I, did, I remember this sort of uh, vivid moment of, of sitting behind the wheel of a car and having like an idea for like a story and I should write that. And I wasn't really someone who had done any writing you know, since being a kid before that and, and sort of spent a bunch of time um, not really getting anywhere in the sense of just like not doing stuff consciously, just kind of having this vague sense that I wanted to to write and do things without actually um, putting in the work in a consistent way to make that happen, because it's kind of hard. Um, and that changed in about 2017 when I started actually taking it seriously. I was doing a lot of short fiction writing as a kind of way of, of, of really actually, you know, practicing the craft. And late in that year, this was sort of one of the things of being in the right place at the right time, uh, like through friends of friends, I uh, got brought into whether would it taste like wine. They're just looking for a bunch of writers, got a writing test, did a writing test, and ended up writing a bunch of uh, the vignette content for that game, which is kind of my first games thing. I was still working in uh, in technology at the time. I was a marketing and communications person uh, just for a software company and kind of writing on the side. And with that, like, again, with the broad sense, that that's the kind of thing I wanted to do and wanted to take more seriously and wanted to make my career um, without a real sort of clear sense of path. Um, when I left that job in late 2018, I kind of had a few bits of contract work for games, like very, very few pieces. Like, okay, I broadly expected it to be taking about three months out from uh, a tech job and then going back when I was less burnt out on that. Um, but I had a little bit of freelance work, a little bit of contract work. Uh, I was like, okay, I can sort of spin this out for another six months. And then there was a little bit more and a little bit more. And I, I, it sort of about two years later, I turned around and went, hang on, I do this full time now. This is sort of snuck up on me quite a lot. Um, and I've kind of gone from there. So I, I contracted for from about 2018 through to earlier this year. I was I was freelance working for well, my, my, myself and, and uh, my partner, Olivia Wood, uh, as, as Beowulf narrative. Um, doing a lot of mostly consulting and writing for indie games. And then in April, I was hired by Fail Better Games to uh, work on various things. Um, so that's the sort of the convoluted route. But a great one. A guy you Yeah, hit. it worked out. Yeah. <laughs> Has your marketing background helped at all with your writing? I'm honestly not sure. I think possibly, uh, like, I think the, the, the pieces that came before that fed into my marketing work and comms work, uh, like are the same things that helped me with writing. Like I've always been very obsessed with with language and writing and communicating in that kind of way. And that 
was very useful because it, you know just be, just being a strong writer in that kind of environment was really really useful but also it's not like it, it wasn't stretching this, my skills in the way that I wanted them to um because I, I got completely just I went out of my mind having to write just press release after press release that were functionally the same thing and where it, it, I mean this is, this is actually experience common to games where you know you there's, there's a limit to what you can talk about in terms of being under NDAs and so on but all the, you know trying to promote uh, customers, these software companies, but also not really being allowed to talk about anything they actually did and trying to make that sound interesting. And just, it's lots of very like corporate speak and writing the same kind of template phrases over and over again. And it's, it was kind of fun to figure out at first and then it just became kind of mind numbing. So it, it, I was definitely glad to move away from that. And I don't, I don't miss that aspect of it. But I think it's the same thing as it kind of went into both, which is just being able to communicate clearly, being able to, you know, assimilate complex information and turn it into other forms and get people excited about it. Yeah, totally. When you were in that car, you had that first story idea. Do you remember what that story idea was? Yeah, and I haven't reread it for a long time. I did. I did write this. Write this story. It's something kind of inspired by um, like changing changeling the lost, which is one of the the world of darkness um, sort of splat books, a bit like Vampire the Masquerade and so on, but for sort of fae and fairies. And it was this sort of um, fae favors kind of thing. Someone who owed, you know owed a certain number of promises and this kind of urban fantasy noir which is definitely still like my happy place for writing and I, I, I reread it a few years ago and considering it was sort of my first you know bit of bit of writing as an adult it wasn't that bad and then I spent you know probably about five years trying to do anything that was remotely as good and just flailing around wildly and not really getting anywhere um and therefore feeling kind of bouncing bouncing off writing a lot and then, and then not committing to improving and that kind of thing um, yeah Mary I'm going to ask you how you got into games but first now I want to ask you do you remember the first story idea you ever had? Um, yes. And um, <laughs> uh, so when I was, I guess when I was a kid, uh, I'm just interested in kind of the connections between people, but also um, human, just normal human experiences of uh, abnormal, fantastical, kind of horrifying things. So I would... It's just about normal people you know, dealing with the uncanny or um, strange things outside human experience. And for some reason, um, I find it very difficult to write about human emotion in everyday life. Um, I, I can only really express it when um, talking about the fantastical or the eldritch or the strange. Or So, yeah, I guess the first story I, idea I had when I was a kid was I just wanted to write about me and my friends, but... In order to do that, we had to be on a spaceship because <laughs> it didn't make sense to me. Otherwise, I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't uh, convey the relationships or the stakes didn't seem high enough. Um, the only way I could kind of make the stakes match, you know, how I felt about things, um, I had to have, you know, the entire kind of cosmos as a backdrop, which is very grandiose for a kid, I think. <laughs> um <laughs> And, uh, you know, I've learned to be kind of a little bit more practical um, when it comes to actually how you complete projects. Uh, you don't always have the scope to write about the whole cosmos. Um, but uh, I kind of always return to those ideas. That's awesome. <laughs> going, going big from the media get-go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how did you break into games? Um, so I um, always always love games but I because I wasn't from a technical background it didn't really occur to me um to make it into a career because writing and narrative design when I was growing up in the 90s um you know it wasn't what it is now um 
but I graduated with an English degree in the middle of the recession. Um, and uh, I was trying to figure out what to do. And I thought, um, you know, why don't I see if there is a niche for someone with my skills in games? Um, so I got a job as the writer at a porting studio called Feral Interactive. And at the time, um, the company was fairly small and it did everything in-house, um, which meant, and the writer meant writing everything, uh, press releases, website copy, UI, technical documentation. Um, because it was a porting company, uh, it wasn't, we weren't creating kind of narrative or story. It was all the kind of uh, the nuts and bolts um, utilitarian writing that a studio needs to um, publish games, um, you know, get them up on stores, uh, make sure players know what to do with them, that the UI helps them install stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I also learned how to just work in a studio, um, use Jira, work with QA and devs, uh, kind of handle release cycles, um, just kind of learning firsthand what everyone's individual concerns are. Um, and as the studio got a little bit bigger, I specialised, um, like George, in marketing and PR. Um, but I knew I wanted to, you know, uh, return to kind of what I cared about most, which is writing and creating. So um, I uh, I started making little short interactive fiction games, and then I used, I built a very, like, kind of beginner's portfolio of that kind of game and applied to internships. So I applied to one at Fail Better Games and one at a trainee program um, for Zombies Run. And I managed to get both of those. And uh, they turned into long-term freelance work. And I think... Um, you know, a lot of freelancers will have this experience. It wasn't enough to live on for the first few years. Um, so I kept working part-time at Feral Interactive until um, <laughs> right before the pandemic, where I decided it would be a really good idea to do it full-time. Um, not such a bad idea, because as we know, games um, weren't as badly hit by the pandemic as a lot of other industries, and indeed kind of found more of a niche. Um, so I was a freelancer, um, full-time for a couple of years until um, March of this year when I started working in-house at Maze Theory. Awesome. What did you use to make your interactive fiction? Uh, Twain. Sweet. Yeah. And then has your marketing background helped at all with your writing? Absolutely. Um, both marketing and um, technical documentation. And uh, uh, both of those are, they're very distinct disciplines, um, but I do think they both actually require quite a lot of empathy because you are trying to prod different parts of someone's brain. So uh, with kind of marketing taglines, you are trying to create a kind of emotional response in a very few words. Um, so when you're reading back of your drafts, you're thinking, do I, am I creating a strong image here? Does the last word of the sentence or the line, does it linger with people? Does it like create a kind of um, like an, an image or an emotional punch or like an interesting question? So um, I think writing those very short, very focused bits of kind of tagline and marketing text really um they make you very disciplined but they also they just require you to remove yourself from your own perspective and read what you've written through the eyes of somebody else it's really best to 
try and work you know if you can to have some kind of editor or another person to bounce this off because you can't remove yourself from your experience entirely but it definitely requires a kind of empathy and I think the same is true for technical documentation um, because often you are trying to um, convey something fairly complex perhaps to someone with no grounding in it um, so you're you're having to think am I conveying ideas in the in the best order am I making sure not to tell people things they don't need to know that's actually a really helpful discipline um, especially for kind of longer form uh, fiction or prose or scripts uh, I think definitely writing both those kinds of text have been just an invaluable grounding for what I do now what was it like sorry go on <laughs> sorry no, no go ahead Jordan I was just gonna say, yeah, like that matches. I, I think even even if you're in a position in a, in a studio somewhere where you're kind of trying to communicate stuff that your writing's doing that to the other disciplines as well, you know, whether it's whether it's um, engineering or art or whatever, like the ability to kind of break that down and use those kind of skills. Yeah, one, one thing I did do when I was working in tech as well was I was um, I kind of managed a creative services team with sort of designers and the website team and stuff. And a lot of that job really was about being the mediator between the uh, the executives and the the tech people who are actually building the websites and trying to translate, like bo- both in terms of literally what they were saying to each other as people who didn't really understand each other's disciplines, but also like they, they wanted and expected very different things out of the process. And that's something that I think has yeah, come in handy in terms of fitting together the different parts of game dev and, you know, understanding what's, within one bucket and what how you need to sort of string everything together and get get in front of someone the things they really need to know to kind of enable them to do their job i'm following up on an earlier bit but uh mary can you talk about what's like working on what was it like working on zombies run just because it's such a unique uh. writing requirements around designing for that um so uh one of the biggest things i learned from zombies run is um how to make a writer's room work um so uh, Naomi Alderman, who is the uh, the lead writer on Zombies Run, and the story director, Rebecca Levine, um, both of them have quite a lot, a lot of experience between them in television. And um, the Zombies Run writer's room is uh, was a really good grounding in how to make that work for games. And um, I think... I learned a lot of really important principles on, you know, how to run a writer's room, not just for uh, kind of a linear script, but in general. So good rules, which I think um, are applicable to whatever kind of game you're writing in a writer's room is uh, set up clear goals before you get in, like both for on a, you know, by the end of this hour, we will have come up with um, you know, a background for this character. By the end of the day, we will have come up with uh, an arc for their season. And by the end of the week, we will have come up with episodes, um, you know, 15 episode arcs, for example. So first thing, come up with clear goals. Uh, two, make sure you have a a dedicated moderator and a dedicated person to take notes and uh, make sure you cycle those roles around so that different people, you know, not you know, people, everyone gets a chance to talk and um, try and have, uh, you know, a diversity of kind of experiences and backgrounds and perspectives in your room. So I think the writer's room was maybe my biggest takeaway, but also uh, I guess the other big thing is um, a lot of really good TV principles about how you uh, just keep escalating the action and, uh, you know, because the point of Zombies Run for 
I guess I should have explained this at the beginning. So the premise of Zombies Run is that you are the protagonist of a post-apocalyptic audio drama. And the point is that the player is running in real life while listening to the episode on their phone. And uh, they, their character name is Runner 5 and their job is to run. So your protagonist is always running. They must keep going forward. That is the only requirement, really. So <laughs> you can't, um, you know, whatever you do in the episode... Um, must keep the um the action that you know the main character moving forward they can't stop and have a little meditative moment that won't work they have to keep <laughs> running um so how do you how do you keep escalating drama and action across um you know throughout an episode without um kind of taking those pacing breaks that might work in other kinds of games or narrative makes sense I have a, this might not be a good question. I thought when both you were talking before, but because you both have design backgrounds for writers who are starting out and either don't have design experience or don't have the benefit of working with designers every day. I like, how do both of you think they could, these writers can think of writing in terms of how it works with the design better. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about it now. Mary, if you have um, something you want to go, but I can please take a look. I would say um, game jams are really useful. Mm. Um, there are often a lot of, I mean, you can set your own game jams up, but depending on what area of um, game development you're interested in, there are lots of, there are usually quite a lot running throughout the year. Certainly in interactive fiction, there are quite a few. I mean, Ink Jam is the one that immediately mm -hmm. springs to mind. Um, uh, but uh, there are lots of people who are also, you know, maybe there'll be designers who are looking for a writer to work with. And... Um, uh kind of meeting other people because no two persons backgrounds are the same um so meeting uh, like making a a kind of short focus creative project with somebody else can be a brilliant way of um uh kind of learning design skills um and also it sounds quite basic, but uh, just pr playing different kinds of games broadly, um, you know, board games and, um, you know, tabletop games and uh, video games and, uh, you know, maybe keeping a journal of um, uh, design things that you notice, what works, what doesn't. Um, but overall, I don't think there's much of a substitute for doing things yourself. And if you're just starting out, game jams are probably the best way of... Um, sharing expertise and kind of cross-pollinating your skills with other people's yeah i'd agree with all of that as well and i i, I got so much out of the game jams that i've done and, and even if even if like both collaborating with others but also if you're the kind of person who can get their head around tools like twine and ink just like just by you know following guides and stuff they're not they you know they're not touching every part of the process but at least you, you'll you know by using them to some extent you'll become much more aware of the different design implications if you're doing that under a deadline you'll also be sort of making decisions to trade off different things with one another um, and getting a feel for, for what, what works, what can work, but isn't a good idea because it'll take you so long or what just straightforwardly doesn't work, all these kind of things. I approve of both of these answers. <laughs> this is a good question to ask then. I, I realize I just plugged Twine. I, 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 I desperately avoid using Twine at every possible opportunity, but that's uh, Wait, it really? is a tool that exists. Yeah, um, it's, it's a point of stubbornness at this point. Actually, don't mind. I've, I've learned a little bit about it and, and I like it, but the problem is like, I, I started out using ink. I've used ink so much that it's, it's almost always faster for me to break ink and do it, do silly things that ink shouldn't do to make it do something that Twine can do that ink can't uh, than it is for me to actually like sit down and do Twine. Um, 
there's nothing wrong with twine. I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not anti-twine. I'm just more like, uh, yeah, uh, it just, I really, yeah. It, like I did a writing test uh, last year that required me to use twine for something. And, and the biggest thing for me was not just, you know, not, not being up to speed on twine, but also my brain for interactive narrative kind of things in that kind of mode, I realized works in a very inky way, which is sli- it's subtly different in terms of the things you can do really cheaply with just minimal effort in ink versus like twine, like just works completely differently in that kind of way in quite, in quite a major way. So I'd, I'd keep trying to do things and go, oh no, that doesn't work. It will take me five times as long to do this really simple sort of bit of text variation in twine versus ink. So I actually have to restructure my entire thought pattern around it. George hates twine. You heard it here. <laughs> front page tomorrow morning <laughs> i was gonna say um i yeah i i mean ink is in so many ways um like a more satisfying creative tool and i also think um you know, because it was kind of designed as something you know to kind of power a unity back end to be a, almost a narrative engine in its own right um it is very useful because a lot of um commercial studios do use ink mm-hmm. however sorry did i say ink i meant to say ink yes um yeah good um because i was going to say that um while twine um is all those things that you said i do think it is still quite useful as a prototyping tool mm-hmm. um because it has that really neat visualizer and because it's so um it's so quick to for people to pick up it's quite a good way of um kind of certainly prototyping a kind of modular narrative early on or just a very simple branching structure i i definitely agree that as a medium for creating um a uh like a finished piece it has a lot of limitations um i do think it's still useful as kind of a like plasticine to like make a little model out of yeah it's definitely become a point of stubbornness for me at this point that i haven't got it but yeah i've definitely like heard loads of people who've picked it up exactly for that kind of prototyping thing where you can build a branching thing and i think that's in some ways the fact that people i've I've seen people ask a lot about the same kind of visualization in ink and john ingle i've seen him from ingle i've seen him kind of say like that sort of antithetical to what ink is how it's trying to work and how it's getting you trying to think about things but yeah if you're prototyping that's if if you're trying to visualize the narrative if you're trying to develop something in bigger pictures that's so much more accessible and useful as a tool Mm -hmm. Sounds like John should get over himself and put that visualizer in. Yeah. <laughs> well, can you imagine trying? I mean, some some of the little like little fiddly text variations, and if you tried to do it, it would be just. I imagine it would be some kind of horrible node soup. Yes. Um, I kind of want to see that now. Yeah. Are people mostly when you're using your using Twine? Are you using the old version of it or the current one? Because I feel like when we were doing it a while ago, most people were using like didn't like like whatever Twine 2.0 or whatever the newest version was. They preferred the basic one. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember which one I've used. I've, I've tried. I've tried. I've tried using. I can't remember the last time I learned. I think I was using the second one. I do remember there being a bunch of little friction points around which uh, I can't uh, flavor. I, th- I can't remember what the um, delineation is called. But yeah, there's definitely some amount of like this works in this. That, I think that was part of my frustration is that there's lots of little bits of variation where this thing works in this particular. If, if you want this feature, you have to be in this particular flavor of twine. Mm-hmm. And I kept finding that I'd hit walls where I'm like, oh, I can't do this because I have to, you know, jump and everything doesn't quite work the same way. So that's a yeah, friction point. Yeah, I think I like ink more. Uh, a related question then. Are there any habits either of you can point to that have helped you with maintaining your writing output or for powering through a block of any sort? Uh, having to do it is a job. <laughs> yeah, that's a, good, that's a great yeah, answer. Yeah. Yeah. And next question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, like, it's, 
it's such a boring answer, but it's true. If it is a job, you know, some days are going to be really fun and some days are going to be miserable. But if you're do if it's your job, you will have to get something down regardless. And often when I revisit stuff that I've done the day after, there's often not that much difference in the quality yep. of the stuff that I've put out when I'm feeling great and the stuff that has been like pulling teeth. Um, so I think that if you, you know, are fortunate enough to get to the point where you have to do it, you just get better at being able to do it even when you're not really feeling it. That completely, I, 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 like exactly, I found exactly that. One of my big ways when I started switching from just writing intermittently as a hobby to like actually trying to improve consciously at writing was just like, I just have to write every day. No matter, regardless of how I feel, I need to just do a bunch of like a, t- like a specific amount of time spent at the keyboard. So I did a year and a half where every day I would do something. And it was exactly that, that phenomenon where some days you'd feel great. You'd be flying through stuff. Other days it would just be awful. And you, you felt terrible and talentless. And then you look up, yeah, as you say, Mary, like you look back and it's, you, you can't pick it out. You can't tell the two, the, the, the two things apart. Um, yeah. I find like, that's um like the, the big thing for me is, is kind of a ver- version of that even now, which is, which is time boxing. Like I use that for, for writing and other things, but, but, but definitely for writing where I kind of say, uh, I mean, there's the Pomodoro technique, which is specifically 25 minutes, but I do lots of different things depending on what my energy level is at and what the project is. But I pretty much sort of carve out a block of time where I have notifications turned off, like Slack's turned off. And I say, like, I, I don't have to, like, do, I don't have to, I don't have to type, but I, I, I can't do anything else. Like, for, for an hour, for 90 minutes, whatever, I have to, like, you just sit in a room. And the, and the, the alternative is doing literally nothing. That's a very good way of, of getting over it and doing it. Um I find the thing that helps there as well is, is just tinkering, like just opening up the programs that I need to use, like, you know, or, like organizing stuff on my desktop because that process of like engaging it, engaging in the work in a very um, low stakes, stress-free way, my brain naturally sort of pivots to starting to think about it. And then actually when my brain gets into it, it's, it's usually fine. I think um, that all sounds so good. I find <laughs> everything you just said so almost impossible to implement because um, it's a thing that I know you and I have spoken about before mm-hmm. that we have quite different um like i think different very different things work for us so Mm -hmm. for me um the worst thing is just the fear um of either being bad or that i'm not going to be able to meet a deadline because i can't physically get anything out and i feel that often like isolating myself in that way um it isolates me with my fear Mm, so I mean, yeah, everyone is very different and strategies that work for some people will not work for everyone else because they have, everyone has different vulnerabilities um, and different things that are a blocker for them. Um, So for me, the thing that helps most if I'm in that kind of position is to let somebody know. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be working in a studio at the moment with... um, very healthy culture of you can just it's fully remote but uh it's very communicative and if i'm having a hard time with something that i just can't get whatever it is out um to just let someone know i'm having a hard time with this um do you want to uh, drop into a slack huddle for example so we both work quietly together without Mm. talking you can just hear the other person tapping away and you're not alone and it takes away that fear or that panic of um oh god i'm not going to finish this i'm not going to meet my deadline i will get fired i will never get a job again um my life is over i think um (laughs) i can't i'm sure i'm not the only person who uh, at the slightest kind of hint of finding something difficult will spiral in that way. And um, 
for me, I find the the best way to to get out of that is often just to let, before it gets to that point, just let somebody know, either someone I'm working with, or if it's just sometimes texting a friend, oh, I'm finding this a bit difficult. Um, and to, you know, to just get some perspective, bring it back into the real world. Um, you know, it's just a job. It's okay. <laughs> I think it's good to be kind of aware of your own feelings and what the triggers are for mm-hmm. um, your own maybe uh, procrastination or kind of mental blocks and being alert to those and finding whatever strategies you need to uh, just get through them. Yeah. I think so, so much of writing comes down to essentially psychologically tr- psychological trickery on yourself. Like everyone yes, has yeah. different versions of that, yeah. but it's learning, it's learning how to manage yourself, learning whatever techniques you can use to sneak up on it or deal with like whatever emergent crises are happening in your head. Yes. Cause yeah, Mike, the, the specifics of what you're saying are very different from what I have, <laughs> but also like the, like what that describes is exactly what, yeah, what I'm familiar <laughs> with as well. Yeah. Yeah. My biggest one is um, when I found, when I encounter a problem created by past Mary, um, who is my greatest enemy, obviously. Um, and I know that in order to fix the problem, I you know have to address it and possibly tell other people, which is a terrifying thing to have to do. Um, but it's just um, to be able to just try and um, approach that task in a calm way rather than catastrophizing. Um, I've used a lot of quite scary words in answer to this question, but I think um, they're ones that go through a lot of people's brains when they're yep. just trying to do their job. <laughs> Have either of you ever worked with writers who actually believed in writer's block? Uh, not as far no. as I'm aware. <laughs> yeah. For me, there's like it, it kind of means two things. One of which is like literally like not being able to you know, like things like this, where there's like there's psychological barriers to sitting down and actually getting you know getting words out, getting something out, or there's being stuck on specific story problems which which that you then need to like diagnose and, and test and they're, they're just two distinct things and as we you know we talked about one of them which is you know fi- finding the psychological techniques to get yourself there anyway and that's the big thing that distinguishes like people people who do it as a job because you have to learn to to do this and and yeah i think you're right mary as well about keeping it in perspective which i definitely don't do a lot of the time like whatever i'm all consumed by whatever particular thing i'm working on and tend to fall into very like perfect, not, not necessarily perfectionist tendencies, but like the problems because like, I take all the problems of the story personally, um, <laughs> which is very difficult. Uh, so I'm trying to like learn to maintain that distance while also caring enough to actually do the work in a way that's enjoyable. I think another thing that's actually helped is um, uh, one of, as discussed, one of my um, freelance clients is, was Fail Better. And what I did for Fail Better um, primarily was uh, exceptional stories. Um, which are monthly stories for Fallen London subscribers. And some of them get better reception than others. Um, I remember like one in particular that I did, I had a really difficult time writing it. And then when it came out, players didn't love it. I worked so hard on it, but it was, you know, for whatever reason, um, it just didn't quite hit the spot and uh, uh, nobody died. It was okay. Um, (laughs) And it's, it's okay to sometimes to just do your job and you know to do the best you can and be a professional and uh to deliver a piece of work and sometimes it won't change the world or deeply creatively satisfy you or be something that players remember forever sometimes it'll just be okay um and that is all right and i think um especially when you're starting out um 
sometimes it's not such a bad thing to to release something that either just gets lukewarm reviews or that some people don't really like that much because it happens to everybody and it makes you realize that that's just part of what happens sometimes yeah um and it's a it's a it's a healthy thing and um not a disaster yeah i've, I've found some similar things since being a fail but it's my first time work, like working a full in london is the first time that i've sort of been on a project where a, things get out the door quite quickly rather than working mm. on a, a game for years and that, you know, eventually we'll get a reception. And also there's a very engaged fan base player base. So they will be talking about the stuff that you put out mm. there. And that's something that, you know, for better or worse, you can go onto discord and see. Mm. Um, but for like, yeah, trying to sort of re- hit, hit the psychological point of, of realizing me, me realizing that, you know, satisfying yourself, satisfying your brief and satisfying the the audience are not going to be a perfect circle. Ideally, that's a Venn diagram and you kind of like try and squeeze it to be as narrow as possible. But ultimately, you're going to have to probably lean on one, you know, between between one or two of those things more than the others mm-hmm. and sort of finding peace with that and accepting that, you know, you, you like every project does not need to fulfill all of your creative and emotional needs. Um, as long as you're doing enough stuff longitudinally or you have, you know, other sources for these things outside that uh, you're actually getting as well. Look at both you talk about like having healthy relationships with your work. <laughs> well, aspir- aspiring to. Yeah. I think that's what I think that's what it is. Yeah, a ve- yeah very aspirational thing. <laughs> if, if we figure out how to do it, we will report back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can. I can hear myself talk, and I'm thinking, wow, that person seems to really know how to do this stuff in a healthy way. They sound really sensible. <laughs> I wish I was you, that person. Yeah. Max and Nate, do you find this as well? Is this is this your is this your experience of, of things? Max has more connection to this because of Riot. Like they have a way more, a way faster release schedule than. I can't talk about it, but I definitely. Sure. <laughs> it's uh, it's a different, different, different thing where it's like they patch every two weeks. Like there's something always coming out, and you're constantly working on new things, which is nice. I would have more to say on this if I didn't work at Rush. Sure, you know, <laughs> yeah. But very important for me to, I what Mary what Mary was saying about it's important not to get too fully invested in your work, or just, or it's like having the healthy balance between work. And life is very important. It's like not trying to be perfectionist all your t- all of your work all the time, because also like the best you can probably hope for is like this work is going to be a B plus, and, and like an A only happens like through random chance, and like it's all stuff that you can't control that would like yeah. lead to like the best reception possible. Yeah, and just like try to like be satisfied with your work, but it, in the end, it's like don't push yourself too hard because it's gonna it's gonna be worse for yourself in the end. Right. Yeah. And I think again, if it's something you're doing again, like as a, as a day job and for a long period of time, like you know, under, like there's, there's always going to be something. And fi- figuring out how to do that in a sustainable way, figuring out that actually just getting it done in the amount of time you have and doing what you can with that is 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 a, is a success condition rather than a failure condition, even if it doesn't produce, you know, the the absolute thing that you wanted to produce. Yeah, and it's been interesting. We're like before Nick and I worked like in house at studios, like doing this podcast, talking to people. Like obviously, we do like crunch is bad, and like you shouldn't overwork yourself. But it is really hard. Like, it's very easy just to fall into doing it without even knowing that it's bad just because yeah. of situations. And then, like, I tr- we both try like, to warn, like, younger writers. Just, like, you guys need to, like, be aware of this. Don't don't let yourself fall into this trap. But, like, I wonder, like, is it even possible to, like, to – is really the thing that's going to happen is, like, you have to get burned by it to fully, like, not do it anymore? Yeah. <laughs> or, like, can you actually never – like, can you actually, like – is have stable work life balance with never having like fall into the dark side. Well, I think I mean, even, go on, go on. Sorry, it was like the thing that we both realized like you, you have to tell, like, I would tell my younger self or anyone else is like, you have to care less. 
just like a little yep. bit less, which yeah. starting out like, fuck you. I want to, I need to show them what I can do and all this stuff, which like I get, but that that's a dangerous road. Yeah. I think you have to have a little bit of that to, to want to do something like writing in the first place, just because of all the, the, like the barriers that exist it both, both, you know, it's systemically in the industry, but also just for the, the process of doing the work for most people. So you've got to, it's got to be something you're really invested in by design. So I think it's, it sort of self selects for people who are probably more likely to fall into those patterns. And it doesn't help that, you know, the prevailing culture of work, even outside the games industry is one that, you know, like valorizes overwork, valorizes like all of these things as if, if that's a sort of, as if that is a good thing in and of itself. And, you know, as a young person coming into that, it's, you know, you don't naturally work upstream against that kind of thing. You're not, you're not naturally going to be able to dis- dismantle that on your own, even if you're receiving good advice from other people, like to learn that viscerally becomes sort of a horrible inevitability. Yeah. And then there's also the other thing I don't, I'm probably going on a, a tangent that is unneeded, but I'm thinking about Mary, what you said way back like 20 minutes ago of like fear being a large driving force and it's yeah. like yeah that's absolutely true with me and it's like the, the fear of not writing good stuff but then there's the weird aspects of like okay i don't think i wrote something good here but everyone else is happy with it <laughs> and is it it's healthier to just let it go i guess because they're happy with it and then it's fine but i'm not happy with it well is that gonna make me go crazy and <laughs> everything else which at this point i'm now at the point of if they're happy with it i will let it go five times later i will go back to it and rewrite it to make it where i'm happy but Mm. no longer will i kill myself to make everything perfect i think that everybody is who gets into this line of work firstly as george said it absolutely self-selects for people who are going to obsess over it because you know this is a difficult career you know, kind of intellectually in terms of your health, just um, emotionally very difficult. And um, the only reason you would do it is because you really, really care and you really want to do it. Um, But I also think that uh, all of us who do this kind of work and indeed make any kind of art, um, we often come back to the same themes and every work that we do is often a kind of iteration on the things that we care about most. And I think one tactic for just being able to let go of a piece of work when, as you say, everyone else is okay with it, um, and maybe you're not, is maybe think, well, okay, what did I learn from this piece of work that I can take into the next one? Mm. Um, I think uh, very few of us will ever, I mean, do any? does anyone um, really make a work that is 100% completely creatively satisfying, that reflects whatever it is that we're most trying to communicate? I, it, does any piece of art reach that for the for the artist? I mean, possibly not. Um, and I think it's okay to kind of view your work as like a, a big body of work that you're always iterating on and improving on. And in completing one piece, you then kind of free yourself to take what you've learned to the next one. I really like that. Yeah. Very sensible. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, this person talking out of my face sounds so sensible. I wish. <laughs> I wish I was her. All right, I'm trying. What's the next good question? While Nick's finding it, it does feel like it's not true fully, but like more you learn as a writer is like the more stuff you learn about uh, as you're building up your craft. It feels like the more you learn, the wider the gulf it becomes between like where you're at and where you want to be. Like yeah. where, you, where, where like you're still, where you're, line of like this is what a good writer is 
yeah because like, the, the, the more i know the more i realize i know nothing kind of thing yeah yes um it's, it's a blessing to look at like it is a nice thing right like it's, it's looking back on work old work and going like ah like this isn't this isn't there this isn't like what i i wouldn't i wouldn't write like i wouldn't i'd write a better version of this now and then flipping that on its head and realizing like oh yeah if i if i looked back on work from three years ago and thought i would do nothing to change this um if i were writing it fresh you know that would be the sign of stagnation and lack of development in what you're what you're doing so it's like it's, it's a refreshing thing to realize that yeah, hopefully you do look back on your work and go, okay, I like it, but I can see the I can see the lines in a different way, and hopefully that will continue because that's a sign that you're actually continually evolving and, and you're never going to be finished as a writer. That's sort of depressing, actually, but it's, it's meant to be uplifting. It's it's, it's a process, not a not a destination. I try not to feel that as depressing because it feels like you get if you're perfect, where do you go from there, and how yeah. boring is life going to be then? But it's always that just means like it's always going to be a grind. <laughs> No, it just yeah. means there will always be stress. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, they're correct when they say, like, bigger matter is like having homework for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, this is kind of related to what we've been talking about, but what have you learned from the other writers you've worked with? Lots of things. I sp- yeah, no, I mean, like, tons. Like, I mean, the, 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 the biggest thing, firstly, from being a fail, but Mary's talking about writers' rooms before, and this is my first time going into a place that does kind of either writers' rooms or kind of a writers' clinic where you just have... I'm, I'm used to working on on most of the projects I contracted on. It was either me and or me and Olivia as as generally the sort of the, the, the one or two writers on the project or like the voices for narrative for the project, which is really good because that's a, you know, that's a good thing for, for, for learning and developing and actually, you know, becoming that voice, but actually being working alongside people who are really, really good at the craft and, and being able to talk in depth about the stuff you're working on and actually having people push your ideas. I think the, the biggest thing first time for me going into that, you know, pitching something to, to the writer's room, um, I kind of, you know, I, even if I were trying to be, was trying to be emotionally healthier about it, I did re- regard it a bit as a gauntlet where I had to like produce an idea that was perfect and, uh, and there were no, no, no problems with uh, to pass, which is obviously not true. And what, it, what, what became clear and what was really good about that was the exercise of, of not just like people finding issues that you could improve upon, but, but more like pushing the idea, like like pushing it on and making it more of what it is, um, and the and learning to take that feedback, learning to be edited more generally has been has been really really um, good. I would echo all those i all those things. Um, I think what you said about learning to push it, I think you can. It's easier to tone something down than turn it up. Mm-hmm. I do think the nature of writers' rooms is that it always gets turned up because when you say something other people tend to get excited about it and um uh i think this is a cliche but learning to say yes and rather than no that was not what i had in mind or um uh, the whole point of having other people there is that you can um you're sharing ideas so rather than a good lesson is rather than being really, really attached to this idea that you worked really hard on because you're pitching it. Um, of course you're attached to it, uh, to, um, to kind of, uh, to let the thing grow and take on, um, kind of take on a new form by virtue of all the other people in the room having, um, having ideas and building on it. Um, I also think it's, again an emotional thing um learning to give and take edits in good faith if somebody has uh, a suggestion or um points out that something isn't in your writing isn't working as well as it could um you know try and come at it from the perspective of we have the same goal we are united on trying to make this thing as good as it can be um and therefore you know this isn't personal. This is about um, 
us together trying to make something really good. Yeah. And uh, another thing I learned from working with other writers is uh, just very practical, um, close editing things. For example, um, if using too many words, um, it's often because I'm lacking the confidence in what I'm saying and I don't have faith that the idea I'm trying to get across is strong enough. So I'm trying to support it with loads of extra words to explain what I'm trying to say. And often um, uh, another person needs to come along to point out that actually um, your what you're trying to say is strong enough on its own and that it'll be much louder and clearer and more impactful if you... Um, cut away some of these supporting words and let the most important ones stand on their own i think it's such a yeah massive i had that, I had that on my list of things as well generally in terms of stuff s- seeing other people do stuff and, and stuff that i do myself as well it's it's yeah like writing shorter and getting that focus and yeah having it, it's it's always it's like the editing process is always i sometimes i, I, I i'm generally quite good at taking feedback when i get annoyed it's not that i'm annoyed to receive notes it's because i go oh i should have known i should have you know i should have listened to my gut because i thought this thing you know I, was, I wasn't sure if that would actually land but oftentimes it's it's the case of like, well, I thought that about, you know, half a dozen things, a dozen things, and actually only these ones need attention. And the editing process, therefore, is about directing my energy and, you know, time for, for revisions to the things where it actually matters. And that's, yeah, where you need an outside perspective to um, actually be able to see if your intended effect lands or not, and then tweak it and tune it. And that's like really, really good to have, have people who, who are good at giving that kind of feedback, because I think it's always a balance between. And I, one thing I've tried to work on and uh, get better at since being a fail better um, is that striking that balance? Because it's it's. I neither want to. I I I sometimes feel like I don't I don't want to go overboard and give feedback that is useless either because it's not actionable or it's vague or uh, it amounts to me doing something that is you know imposing my stylistic choices on someone else, for instance. Um, but on the other hand, I don't want to not say things that I think are you know reasonable and that. Like it's trying to find the line between sort of. Um, specificity and actually going the distance and giving really like you know detailed edits and not being afraid to say things but also doing so in a way that is sensitive to to like how the other person's going to receive it and sets them up to take the feedback well which is a balancing like, and I, I don't want to you know when i'm receiving it i don't want I, I don't want someone to come back and say oh it's all fine um just because they kind of think oh i shouldn't point this out because it'll hurt his feelings or like what like i want people to sort of to go for it but also people who do so in ways that are considerate and sensitive and, and frame the feedback well and learning to do that is such a valuable skill that also like having, having been doing more of that has made me a lot better as a writer as well, because it's thinking about what's working on the page for someone else and also how to frame that and whether, you know, kick, kicking your own view on the work and the feedback around a lot more before passing it on to someone else. I was thinking about when you were saying, like, if you got the feedback back that this is fine. A lot of the times when uh, it feels like when writers immediately just don't trust but someone says this is fine because <laughs> yeah, yeah. most of well, one, it's just the insecurity. And the other thing is when you get feedback, like, well, everyone is very like specific with feedback that's uh, constructive or like negative feedback, but no one really gets specific with feedback that's positive, mm. which really, which I think is a thing that we, everyone needs to do more of with like, yeah, it's just Definitely. as important, like, no, like what you need to fix is like, what is you're doing that's working and it's, uh, you're doing well with your work. Something I came across in, I think it was uh, Hannah Nicklin's Writing for Games book, which is fantastic and definitely is a must read, I think. Um, she talks about something called, well, it's Liz Lerman's critical response process, which is a sort of like a four-step, like a uh, kind of mediated process for people giving feedback on creative works. The idea being like, it's kind of like an artificial conversation structure and you sort of move from 
having the respondent give like their experience, like that, you know, how it made them feel without being specific about what it does. And then you gradually move forward from there to like answering some like pre predefined questions. Um, they get to ask sort of neutral questions. And then finally at the very end, maybe they're allowed to give opinions if it's for things that are relevant, but it's about sort of building that, that trust and also like making sure it's a balance of like, positive or, or you know things that are kind of incontrovertible like how it made someone feel which is which is not necessarily about patting you on the back but is also about building that kind of like hey here's you know you have a sense of that someone actually did respond to the work in a particular way before you get into the the nitty-gritty of things that they kind of look at which i don't think would work in a i don't think that's like directly portable into a commercial like pipeline process but there's elements of that where i think you know the the, the ability to like think about the overall you know the overall effect a piece of work had on you and starting with that as the basis for your feedback before you jump into like line edits or or other things that get kind of nitty-gritty or where you might have specific suggestions on coaching and related to max's question like this original question of what have you learned from other writers you work with like uh past guest lauren me who i work with insomniac now still is my favorite person to get notes from just because she she gives very constructive notes of like something that isn't working, but then anything that, that works for her or anything that she likes, it's just like, it's not even constructive in a positive sense, but it's like something happens in the script and she's writes like, yes, yeah, like yeah. snaps fingers or, or like a dramatic thing happens. Like, Oh shit. Like what, what, what's going to happen? Like, how's he going to get out of this? And it's just like, a as audience never her just like writing in her immediate thoughts. And yeah. even though like it doesn't, technically doesn't help from a practical sense. It's still like it's a great reaction of like, right. They're, they're reacting in, they're having some reaction that isn't. Yeah. Awful. You're getting like, a sense of the experience of the having of the work rather than just like, yeah, that makes me, like this happens a bit with, with, with notes that fail better sometimes where it's like, you know, like this, this is utterly horrible brackets. Complimentary is a great note to receive. Like, yeah, you know, some, someone who's like, you know, when there's like standout points, <laughs> taking the time to dump, dump that. in, even if it's not something you can action as an edit, cause there's nothing that he's doing, but just, yeah. Surfacing the things you enjoyed is, is important and nice. Yeah. Everybody should save these things to look at later so they can feel better about themselves. I think that kind of edit where someone is going, yes, or lol, <laughs> or it's actually really helpful because it helps you identify where the beats are in your own work. I mean, you might think mm. that you, you know, you know where they are because that's part of the planning process. But uh, in, in terms of like where the, like where the strongest emotional reactions come from, um, sometimes it is hard to detect that in your own work and having another person, um, point that out to you because you know telling you exactly where their biggest emotional reactions are can when it comes to the redrafting help you amplify those and um you know frame them better so that's yeah if you are in a position where you are giving edits to people i completely agree you know don't hold back when you have a positive emotional reaction to something yeah it takes forever to get right all those notes and like especially when there's so many other scripts to look at, but that helps so much. And that's why like I've worked with her, maybe a better note giver and it's already been helping the rest of the team and everyone else should do it if they can. Yeah. And I, and I genuinely mean it by the way, like screenshot that stuff and save it sometimes. Like yes. it's, it's, it's same with finished work, everything else, like I, for every project that I do that either, go, you know, if it's, if it's public and has, you know, user reviews, whatever that I like, and they're nice, or it's internal comments about a thing. I'll just like screenshot that and stick it in a folder because I mean, partly that's like pragmatic. If you then want to like look at nice people, things that said about your work later to, you know, prep for interview or something. Great. But otherwise it's just like, if you're having a down day or need that bit of motivation, you can go back and look, Oh, look, people like reacted to this thing really positively, particularly if it's something that, um, you know, there were things you didn't like about it at the time. Like it's, it's, it's nice to save those things and, and not have them be like ephemeral and transitory. Everyone should have a positivity folder. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I saw from Max. Max will 
because Slack is, is where so much of the work happens. Maxwell's copy message or positive things in Slack and put it in a DM to himself. And then so it's always saved there. Yep. Yep. I'll save those later when I need to download them for my own private stuff. But, but Slack <laughs> is the easiest way for me to do it. Where I'll put it either it's the positive comments or the really weird stuff that I don't <laughs> keep for reference later. A little bit of a switch in topic. Do either of you have any tips for running yourself out of a situation where you can feel there's something wrong with the logic of a story, but you don't know what it is? So my approach is pen and paper. Um, So I can't write that fast. So it slows down my thoughts, calms me down. Um, And uh, so I write down everything I know about the story, even the most obvious things. And, uh, you know, the more thorny the problem, the more different colors of pen I will use. Um, And... (laughs) I think often just laying things out in the most systematic way possible helps me find an answer. It's actually quite similar to writing um, technical documentation in that you, if you're writing technical documentation, you can't tell someone to do something until you've explained the premise or that they have the context for it. Um, and so it's almost like I'm documenting my own story to myself. Um, so if I... Um, find that usually that'll get me out of it but if I find that my logic is definitely broken um, two things first thing go for a walk uh, decide what the most important aspect of my story is Um, for me and for most people I don't know it's often the most the thing that's most emotionally resonant thing that players care about most and that is the most important thing to fix Um, so if you're faced with something really thorny you kind of have to prioritize what is going to be the most important thing to address. Um, And every other change you make is in service of fixing that one thing. Mm -hmm. And the other thing to bear in mind is I think players really want to enjoy your game Um, when they make time for something and, or they pay money for something or both um, they do it because they want to have a good time. And although, you know, some people do just like to go on forums and complain they might be loud, but I do think they're a minority. Mm. Most people um, are looking for permission to enjoy your game and logic problems and plot holes take them out of that and make them lose trust in what you're doing. So um, what they're often looking for, just permission to let that stuff kind of wash over them a bit. So actually identifying the problem with the logic is over half the battle because you... um, if you've noticed it, a player will too. Um, but I think if you find some way, if you know, if you can't unpick it for whatever reason, the deadlines are too tight, the budget's too small, you can't make it. You can't make a perfect clockwork piece of art this time. Um, I think the best thing to do is to just find some way of acknowledging that and giving the the player permission to move past it because they they want to have goodwill for what you're doing they're often not they're not examiners they're not looking to pick your work apart they're looking to enjoy something and um if you can identify if you can identify the problems or the flaws or the logic holes in your own thing um but you can uh like you know come up with a a, you can lampshade it or you can um come up with a way to let players let it go they'll often be very forgiving i think that's a good point about yeah. people wanting to they want to like your game because i'm just trying to think of someone who's like they buy a game is like oh i can't wait to hate this thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's true actually yeah 
But I, I cut you yeah. off, George. What were you going to say? No, no. I was, I was going to say I agree. With, like that's a huge part of exactly what I, like, I have my own spin on some of this stuff. But like it's fundamentally like it's it's diagnostics and then figuring out the tools to deploy. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm almost exactly the same area in that. I will almost always go to the notebook and sometimes just write, write the most banal stuff. Like I will like, you know, write, there is a problem. And like, you know, it literally, but like having a notebook, like letting like my hand drift and like writing the easy stuff and just like, yeah, like building it out. It's all about um, framing the problem, externalizing the problem, trying to verbalize specifically what it is. And yes. sometimes you can talk it out with other people as well, which is useful, but I generally find it better to just like scrawl on a, on a has to, and for me, it has to be in a physical notebook that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can get distance from a thing, if you can give yourself a, you know, a chunk of time where you can come back and do it with fresh eyes, that's better. But in practicing, you know, commercial pipelines, that is rarely possible. Um, so I find format shifting and other things can help, uh, help sort of art- introduce artificial distance. Um, and uh, I can't remember what I was going to say. I had another link off that, but uh, it's gone. Oh, yeah. If you're still if you're still struggling to diagnose with that, if you can't reframe the problem, I think it's just then, you know, focusing on the artifact. Like, what, what are the things that are snagging you? Just going back repeatedly to that aspect of the, of the work. And from that point for me is where I, I'm, I'm very uh, structured. And uh, a lot of kind of what I do is around collecting like little tools, heuristics, lenses, filters that I've found to be really helpful in different aspects of my writing. And I essentially have a handbook that I have, <laughs> I've made myself that collects a bunch of like a different elements of, of writing advice or tools or little like tricks that have worked for me. Um, and I use that actively as a way. It's my sort of like, I literally, it's like a sort of wiki style notebook thing on in Obsidian. And it, yeah, I can click through this thing, kind of follow the process. And I usually leave myself little notes as to like, the friction points and the, the psychological effects of each stage, but that has a bunch of like tools. Like here, here's a bunch of things that are relevant. So if, I'm, if I can figure out what the problem is, I can then go and poke those and go, okay, we should be looking at the stakes in the scene. Like, you know, look, looking for triangulating what it is and then having a really, really specific stuff that's worked for me before to then just to fix it. Um, and one of my favorite things to do, yeah, as, as Mary was saying, like, you know, once you've figured out the various problems and you're having to prioritize, if you can find solutions that make the different problems solve the, solve each other a that's really efficient and b it feels amazing right if you can if you can just go like oh I, this this scene's pacing's all wrong and this this character isn't landing in the right way and you can go well okay let's like let's cut a bunch of stuff out of the scene and put put like change these beats to be focusing on that character instead that'll fix the pacing problem and actually do the same thing with with improving the character little like looking looking for opportunities to collapse the work is it feels i, I love that it's one of my favorite things where i feel like a genius if i have, <laughs> have killed two stones with the same stone I think simplifying what you're trying to do is also really helpful. I have a massive tendency to overcomplicate and anyone who's worked with me knows this. Um, And it's uh, often most of my problems come from trying to make something too complicated. And uh, it can be, it's kind of a variation on uh, what you're saying, but just often it's like cutting things away until you've just got the one thing that you're, most concerned with and just you know how do I make that work in the simplest way possible it can be very hard to do but uh yeah simplification if yeah. you can is often really helpful for me that's one of my favorite bits of writing like that like kind of uh, I guess revisions process or what you, you have something that you, you're you're working with a bit of material that you've created and you're trying to solve these problems and like make it more of what it is that's the bit where I feel like I get to make decisions I get to you know, figure out what the problem is and apply apply a solution, and and I feel like I'm kind of moving towards the thing. Whereas the bit in the middle, which is, you know, actually generating a first draft, all that kind of thing, is the bit I just hate the most because it's just a grind and it always feels bad. And you, you need to do it. And you know, the the more precious I am about it, the less enjoyable it is and the less point there is. But like with the point, even if the problems are hard and you figure, oh, this is all wrong, that's the bit where I'm having the most fun, like trying to figure out how to how to do this. But that first draft, as long as you are just okay with it not being perfect. Yep. 
that helps the most, even though you still want to show off because of the first half. And it's like, man, I want to, I want to blow this person away with how good this, yeah. this thing is. This is the lesson. I, I've, I'm slowly learning this lesson. I've, I, I learned it intellectually a long time ago, but it, like, every time I hit that stage, I'm always like, okay, but should it feel this bad? Have I made some fundamental error in the structure or the breaking of this story? And the answer is almost, almost always no. Uh, just keep going and like write as fast as you can as messily as you need to and get there because that's you know the more time you spend trying to optimize that stage the less time you have for the next stage and that's the stage where you can actually make these decisions meaningful and it's funny like looking at looking back at stuff i've worked on recently um, I, I was we, we were in a car somewhere, and as Livy, Livy was playing through an exceptional story I'd written for Fail Better, and was like reading out some bits she liked. And all of those bits, I remember being like almost like the last things I added. Like there were little lists of flourish that came during the revisions process. And I'm like, oh yeah, like that just didn't exist until the last minute, and that couldn't have happened otherwise. And that's the bit where that that like that's where the writing really shines. Yeah, a thing Insomniac has started, or at least our project started recently, which I haven't done yet, but I might. It sounds really stupid. But doing first drafts, they'll just write in brackets at the start of each dialogue, bad. <laughs> yes, <laughs> shit version. I mean, this is on, like, honestly, I, I do this for, um, it's one of the reasons I handwrite often. If I'm struggling to get into a specifically difficult piece of writing or if I'm just starting out on a particular bit of work, I'll often start in a notebook because it, it's messy. Like my, my handwriting is not, it's not that bad, but it's it, 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 like, it, I can like, I can draw lines, I can cross things out. I can like draw arrows across the page. It, it, it look, it's not finished. And I know I have to type it up at least once. So there will be a, a format shift step where I improve things. And that, that like gives me permission for it to be bad. Um, so I think, yeah, that's, that's one of those psychological trick things where you just, you know, figure, I, I did try write. I, I've known people who write in comic sans for first drafts on the same kind of principle <sighs> where, you know, it looks awful and that's fine. Right? Like that's, that's part of the effect. Um, so just finding whatever way to give yourself permission for it to be as, as bad as it has to be, to be as fast as it can and then fix it all later. I found out that I can be okay with my first drafts as long as I have at least just one night to sleep on it. And then yeah. look at it again the next day. And then I can just like do any last, like a quick pass on it and I'll feel fine. But if, if I have to write first draft and then hand it in the same day, uh, I want to destroy myself. Yeah. You need that distance from it. Uh, so again, I, I do format shifting a lot for that reason, because it's the artificial distance. I do have a friend who's a novelist, um, Richard Swan, who is a, is a fantasy author of the, the justice of Kings. And he writes the, like the most polished first draft prose I've seen of anybody. And it's really annoying. Like he's really, he's really good at it. And I, I, I you know, I've alpha read one of his, his new books and it's like, there's, you can still see all the scenes and there's lots of like placeholders and like, you know, sort this bit out, but like the actual, prose he's putting out there is really good and i'm like this shouldn't this shouldn't be how it works it's supposed to be awful as long as he's not writing it incredibly fast too i'll be happy oh oh no he does no he he was a he was a lawyer for a long time and on his lunch break he would write you know a thousand words and he's he's absurdly prolific and very annoying but he's great (laughs) i don't care for him then yeah (laughs) yes this is this is true of many writers for that kind of thing it's like oh you're too good at this max you're about to say something no, it just reminded me of the stories about William Goldman, who wrote Butch Cassidy's Sundance Kid, and is it Princess Bride or Princess Diaries? I can't Princess remember. Bride. Princess, Princess Bride. Bride. <laughs> yeah. So he said, he said, I think it was a Butch Cassidy that like, he wrote that. He only did one draft of it, and that was what God. they filled with. It's just like, no. I bet he's lying. No way. I don't remember. There's some other author who, fam- who I think would write a very rigid amount each day to the extent that, you know, if he finished a novel on a particular, I think, you know, he'd always write for three hours or something, always write 2000 words. So if he finished a novel on a day and still had a thousand words to go, he'd just let, you know, roll up the typewriter and start the next one because, because, you know, he had to get his 2000 words in, which is, uh, yeah, something. <laughs> sure. This is only this is slightly related as we're talking about like writers I'm jealous of. I started an interview with Martin McDonough talking about the, the Banshees of Inna Sharon is how you say it. Max, is that how you say it? Is it Sharon or Inishirin? I can't remember. Whatever it is. 
he wrote that movie. He didn't know what, what the movie was going to be about. He started writing it, then just kept going. Didn't know what the ending was going to be. Didn't know what the next scene would be. Just kept going. And it's from the Hollywood Report at a roundtable with him and the like Jordan Peele and other writers, and they just couldn't believe that he didn't outline. Doesn't outline anything. <laughs> Especially Jordan I, Peele, I think. That that seems extra strange from a game because I know this is a whole thing in, in in novel writing, right? It's the whole like uh, plotters versus pantsers thing, where they, whether you're like a discovery writer who who you know you can you write to figure out what's going on and then you throw a lot away to make it work and. Uh, I'm, I'm not that I'm, I'm very structured at all, but I think like, coming at it from a game's perspective and again, like a, a sense of like there being a commercial pipeline where things have to happen on the schedule and, you know, each thing, chunk has to be done. It just seems completely, I, you know, I don't know any games writers who work that way for, for, you know, the core part of the process for actually making words for for a studio. You shouldn't pretty much because that sounds <laughs> yeah. wildly expensive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. That's it. But uh, yeah, different. No, I bet. Game. No, the actual people working on the ground don't do it. I bet you there are plenty of leads who do do yeah. it. <laughs> it probably is useful for like prototyping or f- and you're figuring out the core identity of something. Right, you're going to have to throw stuff away. But yet, in terms of like, yeah, you, you, there's no. I, I don't. I can't think of a direct analog to that. Really, just churning out a lot of pros and seeing where it goes and what sticks when it's so tied into everything else. No, I can't. It just, I'm already stressed thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, need my spreadsheets. All right, I'll do it. I'm going to skip to the, the end questions for now. And if we have time, I'll go to the other questions. But each episode, we have our guests ask a question to our next episode's guests. And our last one, we had Andrew Walsh and Rob Foreman. Andrew asked, what are the best ways we can diversify the voices in the industry, both as practitioners and as characters? And how can we support those to move forward? So I think it's this is very difficult to answer because I think so much of it is systemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very difficult for any one person to address it. So... I guess I'd have two answers, one for people with a little bit of power and one for people with not a lot of power. Um, if you're someone with a little bit of power, um, uh, you know, do what you can to try and, uh, to kind of create more roots into the industry for people who might find it difficult. I think one of the big um, hurdles is the ability to work for low pay for a few years, um, which really not everybody has. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, offering an internship, pay your interns. Um, both Zombies Run and Fail Better Games pay their interns or people on their trainee programs. Um, if you have, if you offer unpaid internships, you the people who are going to apply, the people who are going to be able to afford to work for no pay for a while. Um, so who are you excluding by doing that? Um, and just with job ads, um, th- you know, this is very difficult because there are lots of constraints that you may be under. But if possible, um, you know, do you need rigid criteria such as a specific number of years or a specific number of ship titles? Or is there a way that you can make your requirements more competency based? Um, And if you're a person with not a lot of power at the moment, or you're someone who's trying to break in, um, I think, uh, you know, there's still things you can do to change the environment and in general and increase diversity. And that is um, have faith that your voice is worth it, is worth putting out there. Um, You know, focus on making your unique um, art and games, uh, you know, as distinct as you can. Um, You're the only one who can um, make things from your perspective. And it's true, like that the industry should be more fair and it's unfair that the onus is often on underrepresented people to make their voices heard. Like, it's really exhausting, and I wish it wasn't this way. Um, but while it still is, 
but you know you just have to continue to believe that what you want to create is worth creating and your voice does deserve to be heard and um you just kind of have to keep putting yourself forward for things and keep um keep making your art and uh you know th- your faith in yourself and the worth of what you're doing it does slowly very slowly like you know change and improve the industry i know it's like it's it feels like an unfair thing to ask of the people who are most put upon to be like <laughs> keep working but uh you know unfortunately uh often people won't necessarily give you opportunities that you don't put yourself forward for yeah i'd agree with all of that i think yeah, I, I, you mentioned as well Mary, it's sort of a lot of it is is systemic and it comes down to not ju- not just specific challenges for marginalized people and marginalized people in the industry but just general workplace practices general industry practices that that, that you know are systemic barriers to giving those people resources and power in particular and i think a lot of that is something that are, like a big part of it can only really be addressed some of it can be addressed through you know corporate culture change that kind of thing but that's very that's it's not going to happen by itself so i think various you know unionization and other forms of worker yeah. activism are a big lever for that and that's that's you know offering what support you can to 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 that um will help everybody including and especially those people um, in terms of characters as well, in terms of um, representing people in games as well, something that, like, you know, Veil Better tries to tell stories from lots of different perspectives. It doesn't have everybody who has all those perspectives in-house. And what, it, what what we try to do is do consultations with people, like bring them in to write stories or to at least give a perspective and, you know, give the, the, give the team there a grounding on, uh, you know, stuff stuff that's out of our lane, while also understanding that some things will still stay out of the lane if we're, um, if we're digging into it that way. And I think that's something that, I've not I've not heard of that many studios doing. I, I wouldn't have that inside information necessarily, but I think that's that's a, that's a sort of from from the non-industry side, from in terms of the, the stories that we're telling and how we're going about it. That is a thing that I think there should be more of. It feels like table stakes at this point. Both good answers. And Rob asked, some of our job when we're writing games deals with working hand in glove in the best scenario with design, and sometimes you just need a longer hallway to get something across. How do you approach as a storyteller working with other departments to get your needs taken care of? Um. So, being nice to work with. <laughs> <laughs> good, good answer. Uh, so, I think um, be clear on which of your things are a must-have and which things are a stretch goal. Um, be willing to compromise, but also be really clear on what's necessary and why. Um, if you're working with kind of art departments or audio departments, um, or you know some other creative discipline, um, uh, you know understand what their constraints are write clear briefs, provide um, references. Of course, you know, they're professionals and they're brilliant at what they do and they will make something amazing. But actually, the mo- you know, and it's it's tempting to say like, well, they know more about it than me, so I shouldn't give them too many constraints because, uh, you know, it'll hinder them. It will actually help them. Um, restraints kind of breed creativity. And I think most uh, artists are a good example I think most of them do really like having a clear and specific brief. And yeah, if you can educate yourselves about uh, yourself about what other departments main concerns are, um, and that is way more difficult as a freelancer because mm, yeah. um, as a freelancer, you're often kind of, your goal is often to take up as little of the client's time as you possibly can. Um, and often you know, a way, <laughs> a popular thing to do as a freelancer is just to take a brief away, turn around a piece of work and bring it back. 
and um uh but that doesn't necessarily that's not necessarily a great way to be if you're trying to work in a studio where um you need to have like open channels of communication so if you're this is and I think it's okay for me to say a thing that I have it's been a challenge for me over the last year transitioning from that freelancer mindset of I've just got to take the work away and bring it back um but to be more um uh not afraid to talk to people check in with them find out what they need let them know what you need um you know don't be afraid to um yeah to communicate it can be scary especially if you're um new to working in a studio yeah i agree with all of that um i think some of it comes at the game director or you know some 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 level of how it's structured and the, you know, the game director is setting the tone as well and establishing yes. that how you know setting people up as peers and set, or departments up as peers and making sure that the expectation is that they're communicating in those ways which is something that individuals don't necessarily have control of but that's the thing that could be set there but yeah i agree with with what mary said as well and it's you know from 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 the narrative perspective as well, I think understanding the, the purpose and effect of what you're trying to do more than the specific narrative artifact sometimes is, is important. Like it's, it's a bit like the, um, how it's, you know, somewhat between a faux pas and, and annoying and unhelpful to feed a voice actor, like a specific, a specific read of the line all the time, because you're, you're, you're trying to communicate with them what you're trying to do. And actually it's for them to interpret a big part of how that happens. And then you, there's a feedback loop where you, you know, you can, you can give them direction either way because you know they, you have, uh, you have access to a different set of information than they do, but ultimately you need to leave room for them to do your job, their, their job while like, f- giving them all the information they need to actually make that happen. So I think that's true of all departments where understanding in depth, what you're trying to achieve and whether, you know, you, if, if you're asking, you might be, there's a difference between asking like, we need this animation, just this, you know, this, this particular animation to happen versus like, actually the problem we're trying to solve is this, um, and giving them a, a sort of stake in that conversation and, and trusting their expertise in their department to provide other solutions. Or, or maybe, you know, in, in some cases it's worth saying, actually, we do need to do this because of specific reasons on the narrative side, this needs to happen. We can't find a way around it. But oftentimes it's probably not the case. I think the, the number of sort of hills to die on are probably comparatively small. So, you know, give, equip them to actually be involved in that process and have a productive conversation about what you're really trying to achieve and how they can use their resources to do that in a sensible way. I related to Mary originally starting out with saying like being enjoyable to work with, um, mm. which I totally agree with being okay with being told, no, you can't get what yeah. you want. And then accepting that gracefully yes. and yep. not, not making it God forbid awkward for the other person or <laughs> worse than that. Cause that's the first time that happens. It colors everything about that interaction for me for a long time. And then I don't want to work with that person or at least I don't want, that's like the first person I will go to from then on. And it just breeds bad feelings. Yeah. I think the flip side to that as well as actually knowing if, if you're in a position where you're having to say, no, you can't do this, figuring out, you know, what, what level of information you can serve is like trying to bring them on board and say, Hey, here's why, you know, here's why this isn't a trivial change. Here's what we can do instead. Like finding other ways to sort of um, try and meet them in the middle if possible, but also, yeah, everyone just not being assholes to one another is a plus. I think trying to build relationships of trust with the people you work with is really important. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you, like George says, if you're in a position where you have to tell people no, it's important to, you know, to either through the delivery of that no, or just in general, to to make sure that the other person knows that it's, again, you are, you have the same goal, you are collaborating on something, you're both trying to make this thing as good as it can be. And, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's never personal and it should never feel personal. And, um, 
to try and remember that when people give you feedback and also to help other people, especially maybe less experienced people, know that you're not, you know, that it's not personal, that it's it's very much about trying to, uh, you know, collaborate on making something good. Yeah. And, and related to our earlier talk about like giving feedback to people, um, something I've been trying to do better and then bringing it up now sounds makes it sound like a, a sinister, like I'm doing this just for the reaction I want to get down the road, but it's like letting people know who like you don't normally work with or are in like other departments that you don't normally interact with, letting them know when like, Hey, your work, I see what you work and doing. And it's like amazing. And mm-hmm. it's like complimenting people yeah, in the general day to day. Besides just being like a good coworker, like it helps build those relationships that you can work together better down the line. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, what's a storytelling related question you'd like our next guests to answer? I, I think for me, I, I obsess a lot over specific tools. Like I've said, like tools, lenses, that kind of thing. I'd be curious to know what are some of their favorite tools, lenses, filters, that kind of thing, either in the narrative sense of like, here is a thing I do when I'm stuck with this problem, or more generally in the sense of like, here is a bit of software I use, or here's a physical thing that I use to make me do my job better. I'm always really interested to see how other people do that. Well, then wait, before you say your question, then Mary, I want to ask that question both of you then. Oh. <laughs> um, honestly, just pen and paper is the best. Um, it's how I, um, it's just how I think through things. Um, it's, you know, every, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but like pretty much every piece of software I've ever learned is like, all right, yeah, I have to learn this thing. Fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, for someone who loves games and has spent almost their entire career in games, um, I, technology to me is very much like, okay, fine. I have to use this to make the thing that I want. Um, and, it's, um, I don't tend to have a lot of fun with it. It's often very utilitarian. It's not where the joy is for me. Um, and it's often not where I am at my most creative. Um, so I know this probably is not a helpful answer, especially for, um, you know, if you're, uh, you know, breaking in or looking for helpful tips, but for me, honestly, pen and paper, (laughs) I'm sorry. No, I mean, I, I, I would, I, I genuinely, I was thinking the other day of how much less smart I would be if I didn't have like, if, if like ubiquitous cheap paper and pens weren't a thing because I do so much like li- like thinking, like literally, like I've reached the point where I'm thinking about something in the abstract that I just hit a wall where I can't progress any further. I have to start like laying that down, sequencing it, and if you know, having having pen and paper, like it's it's so good. I use it all the time. Yeah, um, index cards. Yeah, um, for Miro, me, I th- oh yeah, I like Miro. Like I haven't used it a yeah, bunch, good, but actually. yeah. Like, there is something about tactility sometimes. Like I, I, some things I would use Trello or Mirror or something like to organize it, but I do have like a bunch of like um, little like, uh, I can't remember, like baseboard type stuff and a bunch of post-it notes and index cards, that kind of thing. Sometimes being able to physically rearrange things is a, is a really good way of, again, tricking yourself into seeing it differently. Um, um, I use Microsoft OneNote sometimes, which is actually um, quite a lovely and tactile thing, which is not, I know people don't say that about Microsoft programs very often, but um, it's actually really nice. <laughs> Um, but it's, uh, I, you know, and the, officially the benefit over you to using something like that over pen and paper is that you can, you know, if you have a note that's too long and you need, you just keep writing and the box will expand and, and you can move it. But actually for me, if I'm, if my note's too long and it's spilling over the, um, 
post it, it's actually more helpful for me to then throw the post it away and start a new one yeah. because it reinforces that idea and helps me refine it in a more concise way. Um, and just the discipline and the constraints of pen and paper help me refine my ideas. Um, it's a very personal thing. Yeah, I'm with you on that. It's, um, I don't use it for information storage, but I, I, again, like I just I think on yeah. the page and that's really like vivid for me. Um, I think my, my favorite tool is probably the thing I mentioned before, which is like my little, like it's a, it's a note, note, note taking app called Obsidian, nothing to do with the game studio, um, which is essentially like my own little, like, this is, this is my personal process writing, personal writing process wiki. And it just becomes a very thing where like, when I start a project, I can like go to the start and work through the big stages and this sort of little notes to myself that help put me in the right frame of mind and like dig into tools there. We'll put it in our show notes. Do <laughs> either of you have a favorite thesaurus? I, I use, really- go on. Oh, I really, I I'm, don't know if this is even politically correct, but Google's so good. Like, um, Google has an etymology function, which, yeah. um, George, I'm guessing this is very relevant to you as well. Uh, you know, fallen London and being set in the 19th century. Um, you know, if I want to know whether a word is appropriate to use in a game set in Victorian London, Google will tell me. It will tell yeah. you the root. It'll tell you the root of a word, what language it's from, uh, when it was most commonly used. It's used all its, you know all its crawlers to scan millions of books and texts and it knows that things were more common in the late 17th century or um it's i unfortunately because i guess because of the amount of data that's being fed into it nothing else is as good i found yeah <laughs> um i have a bug so I, I use that i use the engram viewer for that kind of thing uh i use Roger's thesaurus is like i've got quite an old one which is useful for again it's, like, it's partly a full london thing but i think more generally having like weird archaic alternatives for a word can be quite good by the same token uh webster's 1913 dictionary is available online and looking up a word on there that like the definitions are so weirdly poetic sometimes that they give you an unexpected spin on a word that like you find like other concepts around it um, i do use like power thesaurus which i heard about on this podcast is like my go-to now for, yeah like it's like i, I basically I've, like so often i'm i have a bunch of like browser you know on firefox and all the browsers you can you can sort of type you can create a, a, a written shortcut in the browser bar you type something in press space type something in and it'll just jump you straight to the relevant search on the page so i have like five of those for for power thesaurus for like different dictionaries and i, I ended up writing a little back because so often i just open like when i was trying to dig around for a word i would open like all different the five different websites so i now just have a batch script that opens like you know wiktionary webster's dictionary like power thesaurus just like gives me all of these views on this word yeah um for full London specifically there is the oxford uh, oxford english dictionary first edition is is scanned and online via i think wikimedia somewhere um which is really like it's a little bit later than full london's actually set but it's like very close for like fir- figuring out if a word was used in period in the right kind of way i'm excited this would be the most thesauruses we ever listed in one <laughs> yeah, shown us before. i can link you to these yeah. tips after yeah. saying nothing else is as good as Google, I'm like, well, I'm actually glad that is not the case. I think like, it's my, it's like Google is my go-to like for a quick answer for something. Yeah. Like it's become, it's become so. I, I really like use tons of keyboard shortcuts and things. So now it's basically the speed of thought. I kind of like jump to a browser, type in def space, type in a word, and then I can like I can just ch- like constantly check what I'm typing. Mm-hmm. But then occasionally going a bit broader and trying to find like it's there's that really really annoying thing where you know there is a word that is like perfect for this, but you can't think of what it is. Just trying to like sidle up on it through all these different routes. Yeah. I still use Power Thesaurus, but I also use Word Hippo a little bit now. I never liked Word. I, 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 there was a point where it would always dominate Google searches when I was trying to dig around and didn't have like good tools of record. I always found it a bit underwhelming, but maybe I should take a second look. Power I Thesaurus didn't like it at first, but I don't know why, really. I guess I, use, I don't like it either, George. I'm with you. Ah, okay, yeah. <laughs> I use it more like to like, <clears throat> when I don't know what word, like what the right word I want. I, it's it's satisfying for me just to go through, like click different words and see like, all right, which how far is it going to take me to get there? Will I get there eventually? 
Uh, people on my team we swear by it, so that's why I'm using it. Interesting. Okay, yeah, I'll give it a second look. It's, yeah. Okay, Mary, what's your question now? Okay, so um, earlier I mentioned that I think pretty much everyone who I mean makes art, honestly, but you know specifically writes, especially for games, they have themes which they are always, always returning to, like particular ghosts that they want to exercise, um, and uh, you know my question to the next person is you know answer in a way that you're comfortable with but um you know what are your ghosts what are the um what are the themes that you're always returning to what is the itch that you're always trying to scratch with everything you do that's a great question question yeah i could cut this out if you want but would both (laughs) you want to answer that question I've, I've got not. Yeah, I, def- I have at least two. Like one, one thing for me, and I, I've kind of moved away from this a little bit, but definitely all the, a lot of the short stories I wrote when I was starting out are kind of like what I described as techno anxiety, which is sort of like things that could fit as a Black Mirror episode concept. And I've kind of drifted away from that in that sense, but I definitely have that like like a lot of what I used to think and, and talk about and work about was technology specifically in like the social role of technology. So a lot of a lot of it for me comes back to like the intersection between technology and power and people and how like, techno solutionism is bad basically is, is a big one. And then the other end of the spectrum is like a urban fantasy kind of, it's not really a, it's not really a theme per se, but like that kind of aesthetic and vibe and uh, like the magic in the everyday and like the sort of the, the hidden world kind of thing is just like, it's, it's, it's my happy place. And that's kind of just what I love, love writing and could do it endlessly. Mary. Uh, um, so I grew up in Portsmouth um, which, so, uh, for those who don't know, it is, um, kind of the, you know, was the center of the Navy in the UK. Um, and, uh, you know, so obviously lots of uncomfortable things about empire, but also, um, you know, in the modern day, uh, it has, you know, the Mary Rose, um, sunk very close by and the harbor is full of like rusting warships. And there are lots of, uh, ancient, not ancient, um, sort of 19th century, not ancient, uh, Napoleonic forts, um, all at, you know, all along the coast kind of, um, to protect us from the French invasion that never came possibly <laughs> because of those forts. And, um, uh, for a while, my uh, my dad lived on a boat in the harbour, and a lot of my kind of childhood and adolescence was kind of uh, <laughs> being among a lot of ghosts, um, specifically ghosts of the sea, and um, kind of. I mean, a lot of British people have a lot of angst about like imperial guilt, but also a sense of like you know a kind of a crumbling, rusting empire. Um, not to get too heavy, but. Um, <laughs> I think uh, growing up around that and uh, like sometimes feeling quite lonely as a young person and surrounded by all these things, um, there are firstly, those are the particular ghosts that I'm always looking to exercise, but, um, uh, you know, often the only thing or the most important thing or the thing that makes it okay are kind of our relationships with other people. And um, I think, uh, you know, art is always a way to not just make sense of our own experience, but to try and reach across the void and touch somebody else. And um, so I'm in, you know, partly trying to communicate my feelings about all these, I keep saying the word ghost, but it's a pretty good word. Um, hmm. But also just trying to make those connections with other people or like write about the ways that we forge connections in quite a confusing and um you know lonely world 
that's quite dark. Oh no. <laughs> that was beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. Yeah. I think that's a good way to end this. Yeah. yeah. Um, where can people find you on the internet? If you want to say, or is there anything you want to plug? I'm just going to say where people can find me on the internet. Uh, as uh, as long as Twitter survives, I am at Mary Gooden. That's G two O's two D's E N and MaryGooden.com. George. And I am also still currently on Twitter. That's a <laughs> like a negotiable, changeable thing. But you might or might not find me uh, at Master George on Twitter. Uh, and GeorgeLockett.com is my website. I don't think I have any. Oh, you can you can um, wishlist Mask of the Rose from Fellbetter Games. I have not worked on it, but it is going to be really really good. It is a uh, visual novel set in the full London universe and go look it up and it's really cool. Sweet. Uh, yeah, you can find this podcast on Twitter, I guess until it goes away at script block cast. I don't know if it, Twitter goes down. I don't know if we're going to make another account for this or we'll just leave it on the internet and then people discover it. Maybe an Instagram. I don't know. Whatever. That sounds stupid, but, uh, <laughs> our logo was done by Lily Nishida and our music was done by Isabella Ness. And thank you both for coming on. This is so fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us.